Greetings and salutations. I'm Vlad Tenev, CEO and co-founder of Robinhood, and this is Under the Hood. Are there going to be new things in the world? <laughs> and if so, where are they going to come from? And are we going to get self-driving cars? And are we going to get AI? And are we going to get new vaccines? Are we going to get all these new things, new treatments and new drugs and all these things? And if we're not going to get them, then the world's just going to get really dull and boring, and that's not the world I want to live in. But if we are going to get them, it's become quite clear that we're not going to get them from the status quo. We're not going to get them from incumbents. They have to come from new companies. They have to come from new efforts. They have to come from new teams. They have to come from new entrepreneurs. In this episode, we're speaking with entrepreneur, software engineer, and venture capitalist Mark Andreessen. As the co-founder of Netscape, Opsware, and A16Z, Mark's ability to predict the future is nearly unparalleled in Silicon Valley. Last year, Mark made a call for Americans to mobilize and build the future in a blog post titled, It's Time to Build. He believes Western civilization has grown complacent in terms of innovation and that this inertia is leading to major social, public health, and economic issues. The question for Mark is, what does the future look like now? What role does finance play in the rebuilding of the West? And how can the democratization of finance empower all of us to build? We're very excited to share this conversation with you. Early on in the pandemic last year, you wrote this essay that picked up a lot of traction on the internet called It's Time to Build. And it's now the slogan on your website. So it's been about a year since that. And I'm just curious from your perspective, do you think people heeded the call? What have you been seeing one year later? It's been a crazy time. Look, the just gigantic miracle, right, of the last year has been the vaccines. When we went into this, just to give you a sense of this, if people haven't been tracking this, the fastest vaccine in modern history that was developed from scratch was the Ebola vaccine, which was only approved a couple of years ago. And that was a five-year project from start to finish. Before that, the fastest vaccine before that was the vaccine for mumps, which was like in the 1950s, and that was a four-year process. There were all these articles like early last spring 2020 where it's like basically don't expect a vaccine anytime soon and the newspapers that have these like basically these long charts that would show like look this is probably going to take like five years was basically the consensus this was like a fairly disconcerting thing because if you remember like the original lockdowns where it was two weeks to crush the curve and it's like two weeks everybody stays home and then there's kind of this question mark and then we get a vaccine five years from now which to me meant oh my god we could be locked down for years we could be like yeah. seriously wedged for a very long time and then it turned out Moderna, this new biotech company that actually had, I believe they had not actually brought a product to market at that point. They actually developed their vaccine in two days. They were emailed the vaccine genetic code in January from China and they developed the vaccine. They had the vaccine that I got injected with and a lot of people listening got injected with. That vaccine was developed in two days. They had it fully working and ready to go in January of 2020. Now, there is this discussion of like, could they have had it tested and approved and out the door faster because it still took like a year. But like, it is really remarkable that they had basically, and by the way, the vaccine is just spectacular. This is one of the most effective medical treatments in the entire history of medicine. It's very nearly perfect. It's far better than the flu vaccines we had last year. I just took my second shot on Friday and yeah, it was pretty impressive. I mean, it was definitely doing something because Saturday I was completely knocked out with fever and chills for the whole day. Yeah. It's giving you a superpower is rewiring your genetics to like basically make you resistant to the spike protein. It's a vaccine that doesn't have any live virus. Like all the you know prior vaccines always had some sort of form of virus to try to get your immune system to kind of naturally fight it. And this one just basically does the tweak in your genetics and lo and behold, you're immune. That's just one of the best case studies in decades of what it means to build. 
It's just this incredibly advanced form of science and technology brought to bear on a platform that can literally put out a new vaccine in two days. And it's really funny because like ever since then, there's been this continuous wave of panic over like these new strains. And every time it's like a new strain, Moderna does the thing and they come out and they're like, oh yeah, our vaccine protects against that too. It's like, there it is. <laughs> we live in the most technologically sophisticated civilization in the history of the planet. We can achieve miracles. It's a miracle. It's just absolutely spectacular, amazing. That was absolutely fantastic. Now, you compare and contrast that with some really basic fundamental other things that maybe we could have built and didn't. So, for example, how about a vaccine like a registration and booking system? Well, we don't have that. So it's been like complete chaos during the rollout. It's a tale of two cities. The private sector response, I think, has been spectacular. 10 out of 10, much better than I would have hoped. And then people can have their opinions on the public sector response. I would say I'm on the shocked side. You know, one is just like the lack of coordination and the general kind of issues. But the other is just like, what has the public sector built in the last year and a half that's actually helped with any of this? I don't even know what your example would be. We seem to have bifurcated into a culture in which when companies are unleashed, they can build things. And when the government does it, they can't. And that was a big thing I was trying to get at in the essay was, look, it's time for people on the left wing of politics, you know, who constantly want government to take more responsibility for things to prove that government can actually do things competently. By the way, equally, it's time for people on the right of the political spectrum to basically get out of this mode of having crony capitalism and having basically the government basically get entwined in the operations of companies and have the companies get supported by the government. There are too many big companies run by people who say they're pro-free markets where they're just too intertwined with the government and getting too much government support. And so anyway, I try to kind of define a new set of goalposts in that essay. And I, I think on the private side, it's working. I think on the public side, let's say it's not yet working. We've had now, what, 16 months to manufacture vaccines. We could have 5 billion doses today and we could be drop shipping, you know, a billion and a half doses to India and just like solve their problem. We could do that, right? So it's becoming so clear. It's not a capabilities question. Our capabilities are like just spectacular. It's a willpower question. It's a desire question. It's a determination question, right? It's a culture question. Yeah. It's a leadership question. Yeah. What do you think that regular people can do? I mean, you've talked a lot about what CEOs, political leaders should be doing. How can regular people improve things? And, you know, if someone's listening to this and wants to help make a better future, where do you think a good place to start is? I think it's a question of criteria and goalposts and evaluation. It's results, right? It's like, okay, take it from both sides. Okay, suppose we elect more Democrats. Are we going to get a government where the public sector is going to do more, but they're going to do it better? Yeah. It's going to be better to have the government doing the vaccine rollout than to have private companies do it. And we're going to see that because we're going to actually see like vaccines getting put in arms like much, much more quickly because the government is doing it from a centralized standpoint and like that really works. But it shouldn't be like we promise the government does it and then they don't do it. It should be like, OK, they actually do it. In a sense, this is like the most obvious thing in the world. But this has become the thing and arguably like in our system, that's like the hardest to discuss and get our hands around basically since the 1960s. I'll give you an example. Some people describe what we have now as instead of a democracy, what we have now is what some people call a vetocracy. Vetocracy after veto. We have a representative democracy. We elect these representatives. They take power. By the way, they have very high rates of incumbency. They tend to hold onto their seats in Congress for a very long time. By the way, most presidents get reelected for two terms. Judges are, you know, lifetime appointments. We elect this kind of permanent oligarchic overclass. And then that oligarchic overclass could have an attitude that says we are in our positions to achieve great things and to deliver real results. Or they could say, we are here to prevent anything from happening. We are here to veto as much change as possible. And we are going to construct a system in which basically any one of us can basically say, no, this new thing is not going to happen. We're going to prevent it from happening. And again, this is not a partisan claim on either side. I think the whole system is kind of wrapped up in a vetocracy right now. Any large, sufficiently large centralized system probably converges to some form of vitocracy, right? So I was an intern at IBM, exactly your question. I was an intern at IBM when they were at their peak in the late 80s, early 90s. Give you a sense of IBM in that time. IBM in the mid 1980s was 80% of the market capitalization of the entire tech industry. Think of like Google times six or something, right? 
And then at the time they had like 440,000 employees, which adjusted for just kind of the general growth of the industry today would be a company with like 2 million employees or something. So they were like practically a nation state. I was there at the very top before the layoffs began. And they literally had, their decision-making process was literally, it was called concurrence. For any decision that was going to get made, they would have a sheet of paper that would have the list of the 35 or 40 names of the people who had to concur on the decision. And then any one of the people on that sheet could non-concur, they called it. They could basically say, I do not agree with this decision, and then the decision was shelved. So exactly to your point, like, yeah, no, this is exactly right. Any kind of oligarchic scaled structure like this, centralized structure, inclines towards this, uh, inclines towards stagnation. There have been studies that show that just simply country size might have a lot to do with this. All other things being equal, small countries tend to just be run better than large countries in terms of like actual results if you equalize all the other factors. And so, yeah, so it may just be that the enemy here is size, it's scale, it's entrenched interest, it's monopoly, it's oligopoly. And it may be that that's the ultimate enemy. Yeah. Well, now that we're beginning to emerge from the pandemic and you see vaccination rates accelerating, we're starting to get out of it. If you're an everyday investor, how do you think investors should think about the shifts that we're going to see over the next couple of years because of the pandemic? So I am 100% absolutely not going to give any investment advice. Under no circumstances should anybody trade or buy or sell any stocks based on anything I'm about to say. But that said, I think we can talk in terms of trends. I think we can talk in terms of just kind of the big macro trends that people can think about. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to point to individual stocks or anything like that. Of course, ditto to what Mark said. Nobody should be investing based on what you hear in a podcast. <laughs> yes. So nothing specific, but let's talk general trends because there's a bunch of interesting stuff that's happening. But the single biggest thing that's happening, it goes back to this, everybody got sent home kind of thing and everybody's been living through this. And so everybody's been a test subject of this great experiment to kind of see how virtual we could turn the economy in a two week period if we really had to. Everybody has their own take on this, but I guess I'd say is like, as I said, it's absolutely remarkable that businesses kept operating as well as they did. They just basically kept working. Now, as I said, they kept working in a way that's not sustainable. This has really been a very unpleasant period for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. But the fact is businesses did keep working. And so I think there's a case to be made, I guess you could say probably, I don't know, two or three things kind of come out of that. So one is this could be the biggest wave. I'm expecting a gigantic wave of call it restructuring or corporate transformation in the next five yeah. years. I think basically every company of every size now has every reason in the world and even maybe more importantly, every excuse in the world to basically do whatever it can think to do to transform itself to operate basically better for the long run. In terms of like, okay, where are we located? How remote are we? Where are we recruiting? How do we pay people? How do we run? How often do we get together? How do we interact with our customers? How many retail stores do we have, right? How much of our business is focused on the internet? How many employees do we even need? Do we need like a lot more people in certain segments of the business and a lot less than others? And all of this kind of translates to, I think CEOs are going to basically be like reinventing their companies for the next two or three years in a way that we haven't seen in many decades. And the reason for that basically is because if you look at kind of the historical pattern here, the historical pattern for how companies are run is that basically in an up market, in an up economic cycle, Nobody ever does restructuring. Like nobody ever does like layoffs or any kind of hard work to restructure a company because they don't have to because everything is going well. Yeah. And then in a downturn, that's when you do all the layoffs and restructuring and reorganization, all that stuff. And you do that because you have to cost cut. But then everybody's kind of mad about it because it's like nobody likes being in a kind of downturn. And then you blame the CEO for getting the company in the situation where you have to do layoffs and all that. And so there's always all this emotion freighted in ever making changes how companies operate. I think COVID is like the ultimate get out of jail free card for companies. CEOs just now say, okay, how are we going to run differently? 
And then in terms of economics, the way that translates through to the economy is with what's known as productivity growth. Basically, it's like the reorganization of economic activity to be able to do more output with less input, which is called productivity growth, which is the fundamental driver of economic growth. And productivity growth has been fairly tepid in the U.S. for something like the last 30 to 40 years. It's been the big mystery with all this fear about AI and the robots taking over. I think Peter Thiel said this a few times that productivity growth has been like very, very low, actually. So you, you think you'll see that actually spike up over the next few years? Yeah, so this has been a second on your comment, which is really important. So the narrative for the last 40 years has been we're in this time of unprecedented technological transformation when all the rules of business are changing and startup activity is way up and like job turnover rate is way up and your kids are going to have many more jobs in their lifetime than you had and so forth. And technological change, as you said, is like we're rupturing. Disruption is kind of a wrecking ball going through all these industries and blowing everything up. And you can find point examples of all of that. But when you look statistically across the economy, none of that has been true for the last 40 years. Exactly. So number one, productivity growth has been actually very low. Productivity growth has been much lower for the last 40 years than it was for the preceding 40 years. And this is sort of considered kind of the productivity paradox, which is like if computers are so great, why hasn't it translated into more productivity growth? Why did we have higher productivity growth when we were implementing electricity than we do now that we have computers? That seems weird. Also, it actually turns out company turnover rates have declined. Companies turn over less frequently. Startup formation is way down over the last 40 years. Not way up, it's way down across the economy. It's up in certain sectors, like in certain areas of high tech, but across the economy yeah. as a whole, it's way down. One way to think about that is like, you know, high tech is just a small part of the economy, but just think just in terms of restaurants. The chain restaurantification of the U.S. basically means that there used to be a large number of new restaurants every year. The number of new restaurants keeps falling because everything is becoming a chain. And so the, the number of new businesses getting created has just like fallen pretty dramatically. And then actually both job creation rates and job destruction rates have fallen over the last 40 years. New jobs get created less frequently and they actually get destroyed less frequently. If you think about it, the way the economy evolves at the job level is it's a combination of jobs getting created with jobs getting destroyed. If you have more jobs, what everybody focuses on is the net number, right? Which is you have more jobs getting created than you have destroyed, you have employment growth. And if you have more jobs getting destroyed than created, you have employment shrinkage, but that's the net number. But the gross numbers also matter. It also matters what the gross rate of destruction of and creation of new jobs is because that's opportunity. It's the only way you get new careers for people to pursue and new and better jobs for them to be able to move into as they progress through their careers is if those new jobs are created. This long-term trend of job creation destruction trending down has actually been, I think, net bad for people, especially younger people coming up in the economy. That's been the case. And this goes back to this vitocracy thing. I mean, this is where it kind of all ties together, which is we basically have this economy that's been sort of far from getting more disrupted. The economy as a whole has been getting more stable would be the nice way to put it, or more ossified and rigid and inflexible and unable to adapt, and therefore unable to provide opportunity is the sort of pejorative way to put it. And so anyway, yeah, that's the point of the COVID disruption is the COVID disruption is the opportunity to now go reinvent. And so it's the opportunity to go reinvent at the company level. It's an opportunity to go reinvent at the industry level. And then of course, really critically, it's an opportunity to reinvent at the individual level, which is like, okay, as an individual, as a worker in the economy, like, okay, what do I want to do? What field do I want to be in? Where do I want to work? And then where do I want to live? This goes to the second big thing that's happening, which is basically for thousands of years, basically there was this, and this is a standard thing in economics, is if you were young and ambitious and you grew up, let's say a rural environment or even a small town or small city, if you wanted access to the best economic opportunities for your career, you had to move to a large city. In economics, this is what's called the agglomeration effect of big cities. And again, it goes back to productivity growth, which is basically it's the economic function of a city has been that you gather as many high productivity people together as you possibly can, and then they all kind of lift each other up. It's sort of this compounding effect at the level of the city. But it's always been tied to geography. It's always been tied to this idea that you have to get to a city with other productive people. 
if this remote thing sticks, and I think it's going to stick, then you're going to have a lot of people who presently live in cities who have these like basically high productivity jobs who are going to be able to leave the cities if they want to and maybe go live a very different kind of life. We talk about that in a second, but still have that great job, right? Number one. Or you could have people who grow up in places where they don't have access to the great jobs, but who are really sharp and get themselves really well educated. By the way, maybe just like completely educated online. Maybe they never even go to college, right, in the new world. And then they're able to apply for it and get one of these incredible jobs at one of these incredible companies without having to move. And so it's possible that we have decoupled geography from economic opportunity for basically the first time in 5,000 years. I don't have a sense yet on how to measure the magnitude of that, but to the extent that happens like that is a really, really big deal. Talking to and observing a lot of the larger companies, the ones that had offices before the pandemic are largely trying to revert back to some structure where people are going to be in the office at least some amount of the time. Do you think there's going to be a bifurcation where a lot of the existing companies that were at least some medium size do some sort of hybrid thing, but the vast majority of companies that become created from scratch after the pandemic will be remote first, sort of remote only? So I think some of all of the above in this case. And so I do know a bunch of companies and I'll just give, you know, there've been a bunch of examples, but just to pick a couple names, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan and banking as an example, I know are very firm in getting people back to the office. Apple and Netflix out here in tech, you know, are very much like Reed Hastings gave an interview and he famously said 12 hours after the vaccine is out, we'll have everybody back in the office. We need to get people back in person. So you've got big companies that have definitely declared in that direction. You do have quite a few big companies who are going the other direction. And so in tech, you've got companies ranging from, you know, we've got, you know, obviously Jack Dorsey was early on this, so Twitter and Square. You've got even older companies like VMware and Oracle that are gonna be much more remote centric in tech. And then a friend of mine runs a big firm in New York. And just as an example, he said this months ago, he said, look, I now realize that like 80% of our headcount or whatever just simply doesn't have to be in New York. It doesn't make sense to have like basically the back office for what we do be in New York, because it's just like the living conditions are not good. And you know, everything is like super expensive. And so he's like, look, at the very least, we're going to go put those jobs somewhere else. We'll go put those jobs in like Minnesota or North Dakota or something. Or we might just virtualize those functions, right? And it might just be that our whatever, if we have like an accounting organization with a thousand people or something, we might just take that all remote. Then he says, look, we have other people in the firm, a minority of the firm who are doing like the super whatever, like intensive knowledge work. We might want that 20% to stay in person and we might actually, you know, pay more for them to be in New York because we have all the savings from getting everything else out of the city. And so I think you're going to see like a lot of hybrid kind of things like that. So there's that. But then I think you made a really good point, which is like, look, it is always easier. If you're gonna like fundamentally change how something operates, I think it is very clear. It is always easier to just start from scratch. Starting from scratch is harder in almost every way other than you get to actually just like do things differently, right? Like yeah. the curse and blessing of startups, right? The curse and blessing of startups is, bad news is we start with nothing. We start with no brand and no customers and no nothing and nobody knows who we are and whatever. The good news is we have a clean sheet of paper and we can just decide how we wanna operate and we don't have to basically have any sacred cows whatsoever. So I, I do think there's gonna be like a thousand experiments on the startup front. And then I think there's a bunch of really big questions that where there's gonna be very high tension. And I'll just give you two questions where I think there's high tension already. So if you had to come to the office five days a week in the past as a worker, and you're now told that you only need to be in the office two days a week, has your life actually improved very much? That's what's now called hybrid work. But now right. it's like, okay, thank you, boss. Okay, good news is I guess I can stay home three days a week, but I can't move. If I have to be in the office two days a week, I can't move. And if I want to move, because I want to move to a place where I can have like a bigger house and yard for my kids, or I want to move so I can be with my extended family, 
or if I want to move because I want to just like a change of pace, whatever, a change of scenery, like I can't do that. And so this hybrid thing actually doesn't do anything for me as an employee. And this goes to job creation destruction rates. Maybe at that point, that's also going to catalyze me to go find a company that's actually going to let me actually do something that makes more sense for me. Maybe that's I move to Denver or something and I'm going to work in person for a company in Denver. Or maybe it's, you know, I want to move to the Catskills or whatever and I want to have a remote job and I want an employer that's just going to let me run fully remote. And so I think a lot of companies are locking in on this hybrid two days a week, three days a week thing in the office. I just don't know if that's a stable state. You feel like it's the worst of both? Yeah, it might be the worst of both. It's basically like you have to sit at home and work for three days doing all the same stuff you would have done in the office anyway, and you still have to come to the office and you can't leave. And you can't relocate because I still can't move. I still have to be there. I have no more yeah. mobility than I had before. And I just have like potentially a worse version. And I have to work out in my spare bedroom three days a week instead of sitting in my office. Why am I doing that? And so... I think there's a lot of companies that think they're going to make that approach work, and I'm really suspicious that that's going to settle there. There's another really important question around compensation that then comes in also, which is there's two theories on compensation. So let's say somebody's working in a city today in a knowledge work job. They're working in a city. They've got a good job, and they're making $100,000 working out of a city. And then let's suppose they move, and let's suppose they move to a place where their living expenses drop by 40%, but they keep their job. They're not working remotely. Should they keep their $100,000 salary, even though they're living in a place where it's 40% cheaper to live, or should their salary be dropped 40% to compensate for the cost of living, right, Delta? And then which of those approaches is most fair, not just for that employee, but for all the other employees of that company, right? Because what decision you set for one employee is gonna ripple through how every other employee thinks. And so what I hear a lot of CEOs doing is like, look, we've got the $100,000 worker living in a city, they're gonna move to someplace much cheaper if we don't lower their salary corresponding to the lower cost of living, then we're going to send a signal to all the rest of our employees that they can do the same thing. And then they're all basically going to give themselves massive raises, you know, effectively massive raises. And we're going to go to a remote centric culture, even though we didn't intend to. So that would be bad. Or I'm going to tell everybody who moves that they're getting a big pay cut, which is a big motivator for them to just go interview and maybe get a job at a higher salary. And if I'm the hiring manager on the other side of that at another company, maybe I pay that same person $100,000 because it's the same work being done, even though it's being done from a, right? So you see what I'm saying? It's like, is fairness same money for same work or is fairness same money adjusted for cost of living? Right now, a lot of CEOs are like trapped in the middle of that. And where that answer drops out, I think is going to affect, I think, dramatically what the employer incentives are in terms of where they stay and where they, literally both where they stay in terms of employers but also where they stay or where they go in terms of geography. And depending on how that shakes out, like we may be seeing an unprecedented wave of people moving out of cities over the course of the next five years. Oh, that's very interesting. No, I think a lot of businesses are facing those exact problems and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Let me ask you a little bit about individual investing. So over the past year and a half, we've seen millions of individual investors and institutional investors as well participating in crypto. You're seeing all of these new protocols, trading all of these new types of assets. We've had a kind of an interesting discussion of the old and the new. How do you think this decentralized finance will fit in alongside, you know, the more traditional financial services and venture capital and Wall Street to go along with that? Do you think that there will be coexistence or is one of them just going to inhale the other? Let's start really broad and then we'll narrow in. So the really broad thing that's been happening actually predates crypto and distributed finance and predates Robinhood and everything else. There have been two really dramatic transformations in basically investing over the course of the last 20 years, 30 years. 
and you see this in all the charts, you can pull up any number of charts that basically show this, um, you have had basically a massive transition from individual investing to institutional investing. We see that, by the way, a lot in tech. And so when I took my first company, Netscape Public, in 1995, it was just assumed that most of the trading and most of the owners of a new growth tech stock like that would be individual investors. And there would be some number of funds that would get involved, but for the most part, it would be individual investors. Those are the people who are kind of willing to take risk on new things and would get excited about new things, You know, whereas the institutions would kind of sit back and wait for things to develop before they would really start buying. And was this pre-E-Trade or was this people with their E-Trade accounts? Well, this is like the Schwab era, maybe. Me calling up my broker and asking to get a piece of the IPO. Yeah, so this was, if you go back further, uh, retail stock trading was deregulated in the U.S. in the 1970s, like in the late 70s. And then there was like the brokerage wars. There was like the Merrill Lynch, Payne Weber, brokerage wars, all those guys, Yep Hutton. You're too young to remember, but there were all these TV commercials at the time. I've read about it. Mayday, they called it, which actually has uh, significance in the historical Robin Hood legend. Robin Hood was kind of created in May Day. There we go. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, by the early 90s, it wasn't yet E-Trade. They were newer in the late 90s, but it was like Schwab was the big thing at the time. And Schwab was the, it was what was called <laughs> discount brokerage. And then it was over the phone. And then when they started doing computer apps, literally, like they would send you a CD-ROM with a computer app on it. You put it on your PC and you trade one of the first kind of internet killer apps trading stocks. And this was like a dramatic reduction in commissions that made it possible for a lot more individuals to participate. There was like this heyday, basically, of individual stock trading from called the late 70s through the mid 90s. But then if you look at what happened basically from the mid-90s through to today, there's just been this massive kind of reconsolidation of basically investor capital into institutions. So a transition away from individual investing into basically individuals investing. And at first it was mutual funds, right? There was this huge mutual fund boom that gathered it all up. And then more recently there's been kind of, a, you know, ETFs have been another mechanism for that. So one big transition was individual investing to institutional investing. And then within that, the other just gigantic transformation has been active management to passive management. So an active management being basically investment managers who basically, you know, pick stocks versus passive management, which is index funds. You know, this is the random walk down Wall Street efficient market thesis that basically says just put your money in an index fund. And so I'm going to just generalize, but it's been a transformation like 25% of money being institutional to being like 75% and like 25% of money being passive to being like 75%. Not those literal yeah. numbers, but like some sort of order of magnitude transformation like that on both axes. And this goes back to this sort of ossification kind of thing or stagnation kind of thesis, which is like, okay, what do you get in a stock market in which most of the money is being managed, number one, by large institutions, and number two, by large passive institutions? And what you get is you get a reinforcement of the status quo. And literally, like market cap weighted index funds literally incorporate this at a theoretical level in their structure. How much whatever X company stock do I buy? The answer is what percentage of the total market cap of the index is that stock? It's like the math is wired to reinforce the status quo. And so the whole structure of the market today is to basically say if a company's already made it to a position in an index and is sort of considered to be a company, then they're just naturally going to get kind of constant inflows of capital as more and more money switches to institutions and as more and more money switches to passive investing. Two-part question. Are there going to be new things in the world? <laughs> and if so, where are they going to come from? And are we going to get self-driving cars? And are we going to get AI? And are we going to get new vaccines? Are we going to get all these new things, new treatments and new drugs and all these things? And if we're not going to get them, then the world's just going to get really dull and boring. And that's not the world I want to live in. But if we are going to get them, it's become quite clear that we're not going to get them from the status quo. We're not going to get them from incumbents. We're not going to get them from the companies that these index funds have these huge investments in. Like just kind of by definition, that's not going to happen. And so by definition, they have to come from new things. They have to come from new companies. They have to come from new efforts. They have to come from new teams. They have to come from new entrepreneurs. And so it's really weird. It's like you would think 
The way entrepreneurs are like glorified in our society, you would think that everybody would have gotten a memo by now that like you want to put like a real focus on like entrepreneurship and new adventures and new initiatives in as many different places of the economy as you can. And it's like the system as a whole is actually headed in the other direction. And so I think that's the precondition for everything that's interesting to talk about both individual investing and crypto, which is like, okay, there should actually be new things in the world. And those are going to take the form of new companies. And they're not going to start out as incumbents. And they're not going to start out with having big holdings from index funds. And they're not going to start out having big holdings from these giant massive mutual funds. That's not how it's going to work. They're going to come from the edges and they're going to start small and they're going to be creative and they're going to be fringy and they're going to seem weird. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're going to seem really odd. And by the way, the people are going to seem weird. These are not going to be people who like show up in suit with the hair, like the whole thing. It's going to be people who come across as like a little bit different. New ideas come from the fringe and the people on the fringe are people on the fringe. And so anyway, that's the precondition for all this. And that's where independent of any individual stock or independent of any individual crypto project or whatever, that's what has me excited about the opportunity to either have individuals be able to invest in stocks to support new efforts or to have new crypto projects that are an alternate way to do capital formation for new projects. Because the existing system is getting so oriented towards stagnation, there's just this huge opportunity opening up for new things. Yeah. How do you think it's going to impact venture capital or public markets? Do you think that these forces can eventually disrupt VC itself? No, so, quite possibly. And just as an example of that, like we actually, you know, one of the reasons why we've taken a pretty uh, serious approach to crypto and why we actually have a dedicated crypto fund. We as a firm, we now invest interchangeably between equity and crypto assets. And we actually have like investment structures for what we do, which is very early stage with these new projects. We'll actually invest in a way, we'll invest in equity, but with like an option to like basically convert it into a crypto token if that's what the company decides to do. We're trying to basically be agnostic as to which kind of instrument we're investing in. And I would also say it's not even like, there's obviously IPOs, there's obviously crypto projects get launched, but there's also other forms of capital formation that are developing really quick, just like crowdfunding, right? I just think crowdfunding in general is just going to get much, much bigger. I think we're still in the very beginning of crowdfunding. And like one form of crowdfunding is literally like capital formation for a new business to actually like do the equivalent of like basically a mini IPO or something. But look, there's lots of crowdfunding efforts. You know, there are new movies getting crowdfunded all the time now. There are all kinds of new forms of clothing getting crowdfunded. There's new video games getting crowdfunded. There's all kinds of things getting crowdfunded. Some of that's happening in crypto. Some of that's happening in non-crypto. But just like, I'll put it this way. Again, you want to kind of think very broadly here before you zero in. And the broad view is like, okay, we're very, very close to everybody on the planet now having a phone that's connected to their bank account. And they can click to do several things on the phone. They can click to like indicate interest in something, you know, to click to read something or click the like button. They can click to vote on something. They can click to like express themselves. And then they can click to send money. And that send money, you know, some of that is to, you know, people they know or whatever, but like a lot of that send money is they can click to put money behind things they care about. And they might click to put money behind a stock. They might click to put money behind a crypto project. They might click to put money behind a crowdfunding campaign. They might click to put money behind a nonprofit. They might click to put money behind a political candidate. It's true, pure consumer choice on a mass scale. And for every single dimension of that that we talked about, right, in the past, that was not a mass activity. You couldn't do that. You always had to go through some sort of intermediation layer. And more and more people can express their beliefs. They can express their political beliefs, their ideological beliefs, their religious beliefs, their consumer beliefs, their family beliefs, literally through action that translates into real world changes that happen in the real world. And I think that's the big macro thing that's happening. That's really awesome. I usually end my podcast interviews by asking, what does democratizing finance for all mean to you? So through like all of economic history, every individual had things they cared about. And then there was some relation from what they cared about to how they spent money. 
right? Or how they invested money. But the relationship, it's always intermediaries. Like you're always walking into a retail store and you're subject to limitations of what they have on the shelf. Or you, you know, tune into the whatever 500 TV channels, but the movie that you want to see isn't listed. Or you can invest in the public stocks that are listed in the public market, but you can't invest in any new projects that aren't already public. You know, whatever it is, there's always been this intermediation layer that tries to basically buffer, you know, it's like, I want to spend money on this thing I care about. And it's just like, I can't quite get all the way to it. I have to do some weird compromise. Value and money have not been aligned properly uh, throughout most of the economy, throughout history. And now I can, all of a sudden, I have this like direct interface. And it's, it's some combination of the phone itself combined with all these services like Robinhood and, and other things. But I have this like direct interface where like if I care about something, I want to support something, I want to see something come into being in the world. By the way, I'm really mad that somebody's getting attacked. Whatever it is, I can just like click, boom, go, done. And that my click actually like has an impact in the real world. And then by the way, like obviously, right? And not just me, but me plus everybody else who cares about that same thing. And so, you know, this is the sort of collaborative effect, right? Where like the thousand or 10,000 or 100,000 or 10 million people who all care about the same thing can all click and can all put in a dollar or $10 or $100 or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, like you're talking like real money, making real change, real impact on the world. So you've just seen like example after example of this kind of tipping over kind of over the last 10 years. We keep discovering these new use cases kind of of how this happens. And I just think like we're just at the beginning of this just really long wave where individuals are just going to have a lot more choice in terms of what they want to support, like quite literally with their money, with their dollars. This has been an episode of Under the Hood. Under the Hood is produced by Sound Made Public. Original music by Eric Zeeler and Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Under the Hood on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be well. The opinions expressed are those of the podcast host and guest speaker individually, and not necessarily those of Robinhood or its affiliates. The podcast is provided for informational purposes and is not an endorsement of any Robinhood or third-party products or services, nor is it a recommendation of any product, service, security, or investment strategy. All investments involve risk, and loss of principal is possible. Robinhood is not affiliated with the guests or their companies. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker-dealer. Robinhood Securities LLC member SIPC provides brokerage clearing services. Robinhood Crypto LLC provides cryptocurrency trading. All are subsidiaries of Robinhood Markets, Inc.